Today I get to, sometimes I feel like I have to, today I get to preach a message to you about love. And this does tie into the series of messages. Again, I don't know about the word series, but the other four messages that I've tried to preach on the ecclesia, the body of Christ, this uh, is part of it. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But I want to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14, if you want to turn there with me. Ephesians 3, verse 14 is where we'll start. I have a subtitle that I thought of for the message today. Um, And and we're talking about the body of Christ and how she should function with Christ as our head. But today's message, I have love, our foundation, our motivation, and our essence. Love should be everything about us. Let me read this passage and then we'll, we'll continue. Ephesians 3, Paul refers to himself as the prisoner of Christ for the Gentiles and then continues writing and says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Beautiful passage. And we see in this a lot of things that I won't be able to get to today, but what I want to focus on is there is a a depth of God that can only be called riches. We don't even know what to call it. There's so much of Him that He wants to give us of Himself that Paul refers to it as the breadth and length and depth and height. What is that in geometry? I think volume. He wants to fill you up. He wants to fill your life up. He wants to fill this congregation up with the love and volume of the Holy Spirit. The breadth and depth and length and height. He doesn't want to just... People say these phrases that get repeated and repeated and repeated that they don't understand what they're saying. He doesn't want to just pass by. He wants to completely fill you. Breadth, length, depth, height. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Even though the love of Christ is greater than the knowledge of your mind can grasp, it is still something you can be filled with. Aren't you thankful? Let's take a moment and step back. We have different 
varying levels of intelligence in this room, different. If you took an IQ score, some of yours are higher than some others. No doubt some of yours are higher than mine would be. Some of yours are probably lower than mine would be. We're all at different levels intelligence-wise, but aren't you thankful that that's not a prerequisite to knowing God? We used to know a precious lady named Cindy, some of you knew her, who had Down syndrome. And uh, she had trouble speaking. She had trouble um, using the English language or words. She had trouble communicating in that way. But she didn't have any trouble communicating from the Spirit what He put in her heart. It was beautiful. And she would get up and testify and not many words came out. But you felt it. Aren't you thankful that your mind isn't what God has to go through to get to you? And there has to be some level of a mental capacity for you to be able to repent. There has to be some awareness. But I know lots of people who've told beautiful testimonies of God saving them and knowing them and them knowing Him that it was there was no mental capacity. Aren't you thankful for that? It's not based on smartness, intelligence, capability, or anything of the world or of the flesh. It's based on Him. Listen to this again. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Why does God bless you? Because of His own richness. Because of His own exceeding abundance. Because of His own pouring outness. It's so weird that we... Many of us get to the point for God to save us that we realize we can't do it on our own and we repent and we surrender. And many of us, that's the last time that ever happened. (laughs) Most Christians don't live a surrendered life. And most Christians are shadows of what they could be. When we get to the point that we realize all of it is Him, you don't have to make yourself worthy. You don't have to make yourself enough. He already did that. He wants to fill you, wants to grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. If you want to experience what I'm talking about right now, the reason I read this passage is that phrase, rooted and grounded in love. None of what I'm talking about is possible. None of what I've been preaching about, really since I've been here at this church, is possible unless we're rooted and grounded in the love of God. There's some ideas about love that I want us to think about before we continue. And most of my notes today are just literally just Bible verses, so we'll save time from having to turn to every one. But just a few points. When Scripture talks about love, uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, when King James translates it as charity... Um, In many places, that's the Greek word agape, which has to do with um, a love feast that's established in God. When we get together, God's people unite in one place and get over ourselves (laughs) and get past our own little opinions and our own little desires and our own little needs and we get our eyes on Him. There can be a love feast that's better than anything else that happens in the world. The best party you'll ever see. And I I hesitate to use that word because of the connotation, but truly, God can give us something that's better than anything the world has to offer you. 
if we're rooted and grounded in love. If you're rooted and grounded in something other than that, you're not going to get it. We can be rooted and grounded in what we think is right theology. <laughs> we can miss it. We have, have to be rooted and grounded in love. This love feast, this charity. The other thing I thought about, true love, true love is the only way that we're going to have gospel unity. And can two walk together unless they be agreed? I've been thinking about this a lot lately with this congregation, and I preached about it last week. If you didn't hear that, that message, I, I would recommend you to listen. But we want to make sure that we're united with people who think about the important things the right way. That we have a, a, a unity in that. Not, I'm not talking about a unity of opinion. I'm talking about a unity of desire. And that must be founded in love. You want the true unity of the Spirit, it has to be founded in love. And God will give us unity in all things that matter. I would imagine everybody in here has slightly different opinions than I do about a variety of subjects. I love it when I preach and somebody comes up after and they say, I'm not sure if I agree with everything you said. I'm going to have to study it. I like that. Because you're not supposed to just be a, a copy of something. And you don't have to think exactly the same thing that I do about everything. But God's people need to be united on the points that really matter. Points like how you know Him and how you fellowship and how you get to heaven and what we should do when we're together. There's a lot of other stuff that I keep preaching about we can figure out or He can figure out. Tozer said it this way. He said, God demands oneness in all things that matter. In all other things, we're free to think as we choose. The third point I thought of is when you really have love as your foundation... There is an individual and a collective humility that prevails and pervades the space. I long for that. I don't see a lot of it. We've had, I think, a, um, a level of humility here just because there hasn't been a lot of self-attention, but I want more of it here. I feel like a lot has happened since last Sunday until today in just one week. We got to hear um, a native preacher from Belize and his wife uh, speak several times, and other preachers. There was a minister's conference in Bowling Green that I went to. But this man and his wife, through the power of God, through his spirit, impacted me so powerfully. I haven't seen people in a long time that, that, that were that full of pure love. Because we get so bogged down with the noise of religion and doctrine and dogma, we get worried about being right or having things figured out. And we should know what we believe. Don't misunderstand me. But these people, this little lady, about, what, four foot nine probably, little Mayan lady, got up, and English is her fourth language. They speak other languages than English. So it was, it was slow. She was having to think about her words. But the whole time, love. And the presence of God was just pouring out. And she just kept saying, I'm so happy to have this peace. I want to tell the world about it. That's what we can have. That, there was an individual humility in them that's rare. And it helped encourage a collective humility. 
There was no self-focus. There was no self-elevation. There was no need to be right. There was an utter sense of inadequacy. They're not even speaking in their native language. And the love was just pouring out and it, it melted me. We can have individual humility and collective humility uh, only through love. And not just thinking about what we want, or I'm talking about a person, what a person wants or needs, but what the members of the body need, and ultimately, most importantly, what God desires. It's only possible through love and humility. Another point is love equips us, reminds us to focus on the most important things. Why we're actually here. Love helps us do that. And another point, love should overflow from our pure hearts in all that we do. It was like that with that Belizean preacher and his wife. I've seen that in some other people over the years. It's rare. I preached some years back, and I want to ask this question here today that I asked, I don't know, five or six years ago. Would you rather be right or kind? Now, you may say, well, that's a false dichotomy. Absolutely, it is a false dichotomy, meaning you you can be both. But I want you to take a moment to actually dig down in your heart and see which one you would say if you were honest. Is it more important to you to be right or kind and loving to somebody? Now, sometimes being loving demands that you speak truth and you'll end up being right and they're wrong. That happens. Jesus was like that all the time. He was right. And love compelled him to tell the truth and people hated it, hated him and ended up killing him for it. So it is a false dichotomy. I'm not suggesting one or the other is exclusive, but think about it. You know what? Younger Josh, I'm talking high school age, I like being right a lot more than I care about being right now. The longer I try to serve the Lord, the less I care about being right. I don't get any satisfaction from winning an argument anymore. My wife might disagree with that, but even then, even though I'm usually right in our arguments, uh, I don't walk away feeling any better or any happier. I usually feel much worse. Being right has a a cost. And you know what the the biggest cost is? It destroys true humility. And the longer I try to serve the Lord, I mean, I want Him. Because my mind's not enough. What I can figure out isn't enough. What I think I understand isn't enough. And me being right is far from enough. And how many times have you thought you were right and you dove in and thought about it, maybe verbally, and years later you realized you weren't even right. That's happened to me a lot. Love, love, love can fix all of this stuff. (laughs) So let's just dwell on some different scriptures. This is probably not going to be a a new message today. Uh, That's okay. I'm not trying to be original. I'm just trying to be submissive to what the Lord gives me. I'm not trying to give you a new doctrine. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of foundational truth. And the most foundational truth is the love of God, which passes all understanding. So let's just consider some different scriptures. First of all, what is love? 
I guess we have to step back and even say, what is love? Because everything in our culture gives us a false definition of love. We have phrases like, you can't help who you fall in love with. (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) It's certainly not biblical. You absolutely can help it. That's just emotion. The Bible says uh, that your heart is deceitfully wicked, not to trust it. And to the young people, if you're not married yet and you want to be, you can help who you fall in love with. Be careful. Be cautious. That person that you're all googly-eyed over might be from the, the enemy. What is love in the context, actually not even in the context of Scripture, just what is love, period, because that's all that matters. What does God think love is? How do we define love according to His standard? Because that's what we're talking about, what Jesus lived. Remember the the six points that I talked about? The seventh one we want to get rid of because it's all us. But everything Jesus lived and modeled and taught, everything Scripture explicitly teaches and implicitly teaches, everything the Holy Spirit has written in your heart and continues to lead, and all of the habits we have that point and help those things, all of that has to do with the love of God. And so, what is love according to God? It's not a big emotion. It's not something you can't help. It's not something that just surges up in your heart and and makes you irresponsible for your actions. I couldn't help it. I was in love. You're supposed to be in your right mind. Sometimes that feeling that you call being in love is intoxicating. You're not in your right mind. But you're supposed to be. I've been there. I've, I've had thoughts like that. What is love? Maybe the easiest way to understand it. 1 John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Love, foundationally, is sacrifice. Love, foundationally, is, is decisional. Especially in marriage. And that's why the institution of marriage is so important to understanding the Lord and how He works with His people. Because when you make that covenant promise before God and other witnesses, this is at least how it should be, you say, until death do us part. I used to work uh, at the Veterans Administration. I spent 11 years there, and my first three years were in a call center where people from all over called. Back then, we had a lot of World War II veterans still alive and their spouses. And, and so I got to talk to a lot of old people. And any time one of them called and I noticed that they had been married for 50 or 60 or 65 years, I always asked, what's the secret? And you know what the substance was of every, every one of them? They used different words, but they basically all said the same thing. Sacrifice. One lady put it this way. She said, well, back when we got married, we, we, we made a promise and we didn't know there was any other option. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. So, I won't belabor this point, but I'll just sum it up by saying, whatever you think love is, if it's not um, founded in um, letting go of your own selfish desires, it's not love. If you think this feeling is founded in what you want, it's not love. True love is foundationally wanting what's best for the other person. You think Jesus enjoyed laying his life down? Not at all. 
He just said, I couldn't help it. I was in love. No. He said, I make the choice to lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. So love at its most fundamental essence is sacrifice. Romans 13.10 says, Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Functionally, love is good for everybody you come in contact with. And again, we can examine ourselves and say, is this emotional feeling in my heart, is it really love? Is what it's prompting me to do good for everybody I'm coming in contact with? And more than that, does it lift up the Lord? Is it pleasing to Him? Love works no ill to His neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's such a simple, clear, foundational, big truth. I want us to to get this. Many people are still trying to fulfill the law and they don't understand the only way to fulfill it is through love. Through not doing anything bad to anybody else. And that's only possible through Jesus. There's a story in John chapter 8, I'll just paraphrase, but I hope you'll take the time (coughs) to read it another time. There was a woman caught in the act of adultery. And the religious experts, the religious elite, the, the really good guys, came to Jesus and there's a little footnote that says um, that they might try to trip him up, trick him, deceive him. And they said, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. They were, they were trying to get him to stumble. Jesus, as he often did, did not submit himself to their silly misunderstanding about religion. He did what was in his heart from the Father and destroyed their religion. He got down on the ground. He began writing in the dirt or the sand. I don't know what he wrote. We're not told. But as he wrote, every one of them who had rocks in their hands about to stone her from the oldest to the youngest dropped their rocks and left. And he looked at this woman. This is the life of Jesus. This is the embodiment of what real love looks like. He looks at her and he says, Woman... Where are your accusers? Are, are there nobody left to condemn you? And she says, there's not one left, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus was never hard on honest-hearted sinners. You know who he was hard on? Phony religious people. Yes. And still today, phony religious people are who give me a bad taste in my mouth. Make me. I mean, you see my expression changes when I think about it. Jesus wasn't hard on honest sinners who wanted to be delivered. And this woman, I mean, I don't know why it took her so long to get to that point, but she was ready. And he could see her heart. And he could also see all the religious phonies' hearts too. What did he write in the sand? I don't know. I don't even want to speculate. Maybe it was their own sins. Maybe it was truths. That, maybe it was things. I don't know what it was. But he demonstrated that love is the fulfillment of the law. Not exacting revenge or justice or hostility. They were so self-elevated. We caught this sinner. Let's destroy her. We should never glory in the punishment of somebody else. Even practically. There's a a scripture that says if you see... um, It says, do not rejoice when your enemy stumbles, lest the Lord see it and turn his wrath away. (laughs) You shouldn't even be glad when the worst people get punished. Where are your accusers? They're none, Lord. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. 
the tender love of Jesus. I want more of that. Because I don't have a lot of it in me, in my flesh, without Him. I want to. I want to be nicer and kinder and more loving. I want my heart to be moved by the brokenness around me. But it's heavy, isn't it? Another of my favorite passages that show how Jesus lived in a posture of love. Matthew 9.36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. You know how I might have been tempted to act? Why didn't any of you people think to bring food? He just went out in the wilderness without any preparation. If you're honest, some of you probably would have felt the same way. Jesus didn't feel that way. He looked on the multitudes, all these people who didn't make a good decision. (laughs) Practically. Why not? Because they were desperate to follow Him. They weren't thinking about eating or preparing or their own lives. He actually taught, if any of you don't take up your cross and follow me, if you try to gain and protect your own life, you're not going to get the life I can give you. So really, they were trying in their feeble, misunderstood way to do what He was telling them. Come after me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And so they ended up out there without any preparation, without... You know what? He looked on them and his heart was moved with compassion. And then he took care of them. I want to be more like that. Because I look at the masses and get frustrated. All you have to do to drive to Nashville and you'll feel what I'm talking about. All those... I won't say any of the words. Those those people in their car... You don't look at the masses of people in your way when you're trying to get somewhere and have compassion on them. Jesus did. And Jesus wasn't like us. People were constantly sucking his life out of him. Literally. You remember the woman that he healed who had so much faith that she dove through a crowd and said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. And he said, virtue went out of me. Who touched me? And his disciples, they never got it. They said, Lord, you're in a crowd. People are bustling against you. How can you ask who touched you? He said, no, something left me. We don't think about the cost to Jesus as a man that it took to love people the way he did. But he never stopped. Behold what manner of love, this is 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Let's dwell on that for just a moment. I've mentioned when my daughter was born and she came into this world, the doctor let me catch her with his hands underneath because I didn't know what I was doing. And something I never felt before happened. And the only way I know how to describe it is an involuntary, deep feeling of, I would die for you, I would kill for you. I don't know how else to describe it. Still, over a year later, I don't know how else to describe it. And in that moment, I felt a love that I never experienced before. That is a, a natural love that God put, and, and I'm, it's, maybe it's even deeper for mothers, I don't know. But that's something God put there. 
that, that I, I couldn't help. Now, when God adopts us, He voluntarily seeks us out for adoption, calls us, draws us to Himself, equips us with everything we need. He gives us the faith to trust Him. It's the faith of Christ. And when we repent and He forgives us, there's something that happens that Scripture refers to as spiritual adoption. I talk a lot about the new birth, and it is a spiritual birth. But we don't sometimes think about what happens on God's side is He voluntarily adopts us. And when He does that, a love that's even deeper than what I felt for my daughter is in Him. It's even deeper and more pure. I just got a tiny glimpse of it. Now, God does this voluntarily and of His own accord, of His own will, He saves us. Jesus says He keeps us. And I'm getting to a point of... How silly it would be for me to unlove my daughter because she did something I didn't like. Not going to happen. I might have to discipline her. And some parents, their children get so bad that that the discipline has to be severe. But you don't stop loving them. God, when He saves you and adopts you, people have this idea that you can lose your salvation. You can if you're holding on to your own salvation. If it's not the real thing, if you, if you made yourself get something, yeah, you can lose it. But God doesn't unadopt what He has adopted with unconditional love. I never thought about it like that until this message. When God saves you, He adopts you, and He's not so fickle to unadopt you and then readopt you when you rededicate your life and then unadopt you again and kick you out and have you back and kick you out. He's not like that. His love is infinite and greater than anything we can imagine. And I'm not trying to give you false assurance. If you're not sure you're saved, like I keep preaching, find out from Him if you're really adopted. But once you're adopted, you're in His family and you're not getting out of it. You might do some silly things that break fellowship, but He's not going to unadopt you. What manner of love. The Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, that He should adopt us. Beautiful. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Again, another place Scripture clearly teaches that if you really want to fulfill the commandments, the heart of the commandments of God, it has to be done in love, out of a pure heart. I want to read a bit from uh, 1 Timothy 1. This is in the Amplified Version to give us some expansion on it. Paul's writing, he says, As I urged you when I was on my way to Macedonia, stay on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain individuals not to teach any different doctrines, nor to pay attention to legends and fables and myths and endless genealogies which give rise to useless speculation and meaningless arguments rather than advancing God's program of instruction which is grounded in faith and requires surrendering the entire self to God in absolute trust and confidence. But the goal of our instruction is love which springs from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some individuals have wandered away from these things into empty arguments and useless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law of Moses, even though they do not understand the terms they use or the subjects about which they make such confident declarations. You ever ran into somebody like that? I have. I've run into a lot of religious people who, that all they, they'll take some obscure passage 
in Daniel or Revelation and start beating me with it like a hammer. Don't you agree? And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't even thought about it. No love, no kindness, no gentleness, no humility, none of the things that God establishes. You know what it is? It's endless. It's useless speculation. It's meaningless arguments rather than the advancing of the kingdom of God. These things, any doctrine that you hold needs to be established in love. I'm not saying you shouldn't learn complicated or deep truths of God. But the deep truths of God have to be revealed by His Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from hours and hours sitting in your study reading over everybody's books. It comes through the Holy Spirit. God's program of instruction, which is grounded in faith and requires surrendering the entire self to God in absolute trust and confidence. That's what love brings about. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The very greatest love is to lay down your life for someone else. Some of us have been confronted with that directly. Anybody who's, who's been in the military and on a combat tour has been confronted with that. Am I prepared to lay down my life for my friends, my brothers in arms? And many people have done that. And I thank the Lord for that sacrifice. And we latch on to that part. We get that part of it, that there are people who gave the ultimate sacrifice, and that is an expression of the greatest love. But this is a call also to those of us who are living daily. We are supposed to lay down our lives for each other, not just in physical death, but in the daily crucifying of our own desires and selfish wants and ambitions and everything that I want. We're supposed to lay down our lives for our friends. And if if our friends aren't in this building, where are they? We worship together, we love the Lord together, we labor together, we should be each other's friends. And we should lay down our lives for each other. How do we do that? That's hard. Can we, can we just be honest? In some ways, I think it would be easier in a sudden impulse with adrenaline rushing to go save somebody suddenly and then I'm not here anymore, I'm in heaven. It's hard to sacrifice my own desires and wants for what's best for somebody else. That's just the truth. And some of you, I think it's not as hard as it is for me because maybe you've got more of the Lord's love in you. But it's hard to give up what we want, what we think is right, what we think we should have. One way we can move toward that is Philippians 2.3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Another translation has it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Brothers and sisters, do we value each other higher than ourselves? Do we? When God is really with me, I don't feel like I'm the most important person here. I don't. And the message I preach is a whole lot more important than I am, even though I'm delivering it. But sometimes through our actions, when the Lord's not with us as much, we start to think, we don't think about it that way, like I'm more important than you are. 
But when you try to impose your own desires and wills and needs on somebody else, that's exactly what we're saying. So I, I keep having these teachings in my heart around this subject of, because we've got a congregation here that, that it, it's really brand new. I mean, none of the people as a group who were here were here six months ago as a group. There's the people who've been here for years and years and years. There's brand new people. There's people who used to come and came back. There's people who are visiting. There's people who've united recently. This is a different body than it was six months ago. And, and we must be reminded to let go of what we want. Every one of us. And figure out instead what the head of the body is leading, directing, guiding, impressing. What does he want? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, esteem others higher than yourselves. I have so many scriptures, I won't get to all of them. I want to read this one, though. Colossians 3, beginning of verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against anyone else, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity. Remember I said charity is the agape love of God? Clothe yourself in the life-transforming love of Christ. That's the only way to get over yourself. Love is the only thing that can compel me to love somebody I don't like. And I, I, I didn't say that on accident. I love people I don't like very much. That, that's a thing. And one of the identifying marks when God saved me, I noticed an internal transformation that I couldn't hate anybody anymore. It was gone. Now, don't get me wrong, I still get frustrated. My flesh still gets in the way. Sometimes I, I feel things I shouldn't or think things I shouldn't or say things I shouldn't. But that is not the Holy Spirit in me. That's just the own mess of my flesh that I am. God changed me. I can't dwell on any of that. And I want to tell you, when God has changed you, when you've really been saved, you're different. If you're not different, you need to make sure if you know Him. I heard a person say one time, I, I, I never have a burden for a lost person. That's not my job. And I thought, oh my, do you really know the Lord? All these years later, I doubt He does. And I'm not being judgmental. I'm saying there are fruits of a person who knows God. Sometimes we get distracted from it. Sometimes we take a wayward path. Sometimes we get like the prodigal son. But there's something in there that's different. And that something, that love of God, should be what motivates us. We should be clothed in it. Put on, put on charity, in the, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. I'm going to read a couple more. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. How do you walk worthy of the salvation you have? It, it, or by worthy, we mean in a manner that's pleasing to the one who saved you. Like this. 
with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. There's that word again, forbearing. How many of y'all like forbearing other people? Some of you, I think, are really good at it. I'm not really good at it. My Aunt Connie's not really good at it. We talk about how hard it is, and I'm not picking on you, but she's somebody we've talked about. It's... There's two main postures that you have toward the world. You're either a person who says, why do I always mess things up? Why am I so dumb? Why do I always do this? Or you're a person who says, why do they always mess things up? Why are they so dumb? Why do they always do that? My flesh is the second one. And you know deep inside which one. Now, my mama, her flesh is the first one. She never understood how somebody could be the other way. I understand it. God has to break that in me. This forbearing is hard. It's hard to love somebody when they've unjustifiably hurt you or somebody you love. It's hard to forgive and go on. In fact, it's impossible unless the Lord helps. What Stephen did when he was being stoned to death and he said, Behold, heaven is open. I see Christ on the right hand of the Father. And then he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Same thing Jesus said. That was only through God. You don't love somebody enough to pray a blessing and a forgiveness upon them while they're killing you unless God's in it. It's, it's biologically impossible. It has to be supernatural. Your body is wired for self-preservation. If somebody's killing you, you're going to try to get away or kill them back. But the Holy Spirit can overcome even the most deep, wired things of your nature. That's part of what the forbearance of Christ is about. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering... Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This unity of the Spirit, we have had some unity of the Spirit here at Hendersonville lately, haven't we? In a way that I haven't experienced in a, in a long time. There is a sense of unity here, uh, even with all the differing backgrounds and personalities and opinions. It seems like almost everybody coming wants the same thing primarily, which is God. That's something we need to endeavor to keep. And the only way we can keep it is through love, through focusing on Jesus. Because I promise you, you have enough time with me, you're going to find things about me you don't like. And the enemy can blow those things up and make them seem big and make them more important than they are. And that can happen with each and every one of us. We have to endeavor to keep this unity in the bond of peace and through love. NIV translate that part. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Beautiful. 1 John 4, 8 makes it super clear. I mean, so clear. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. <laughs> if you don't have love, you're not saved. Period. That's not my opinion. That's what the Apostle John clearly stated. He that does not have love does not know God, for God is love. You can't know the Father whom you haven't seen if you don't 
love people that you have seen. I messed up the quote, but how can you claim to love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love each other whom you have seen? That's the point. If you really have God, you have love. Now, love is not something you can work up in that sense. It's not something you can self-create. It's not. Love is, is God. And the only way you can have authentic love is to have God. Now, you could learn to be nice, you can learn to be polite, you can learn to be kind, you can learn manners, but manners aren't the same thing as the Holy Spirit and love. One can lead to the other. In other words, when you know God, you can have more and more uh, kindness and love toward everybody else, but the other one doesn't lead to God. You can be polished, polite, nice, and dead on the inside. And you can be a broken mess and whole on the inside. Because when God saves us, He doesn't immediately remake this tabernacle of flesh. That's going to happen later. He puts His Spirit in us and makes us a new person inside. We still have to deal with the outside. I don't feel like I should keep going. There's, there's lots more scriptures. But I want to conclude by just saying what love is everything. I mean, I, I keep preaching, keep preaching, because it keeps being on my heart. We have to have Jesus. We have to have our eyes on Him. We have to have the power of God. All of that is grounded in the authentic love of Christ. That's really what we must have, love. Love helps us get over all the other stuff, get over ourselves, get over all our opinions and all our thoughts and all our own wants. Love is the only thing that does that. That's why Jesus came. You know, He wasn't forced to come. He came voluntarily because He loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's some love. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you, not even knowing how you're going to respond. That's love. That's my prayer today, that our hearts, our minds, our actions would be motivated by the pure love of God. And um, again, that's something we can only get from Him. Let's have a song. Let's just have a minute for the message to, to sink in, if you can get one ready. I, I want to say something that, that that's on my heart. I... I try very, diffi- very, very sincerely uh, not to mix up sentimental and spiritual. People have a tendency to do that. They feel the Lord and then they, they get all emotional. I don't want to do that. But I, I keep feeling this and I want to tell you. Sometimes God uses a person to show love from Him in a way that is exactly what you need in a time that you need it that nothing else could have done. And... Um, Y'all know about my, my wife when she was in the hospital. Uh, she was paralyzed three weeks after we were married. And we ended up at Vanderbilt, and it was miserable. And I was sleeping a foot from the floor that smelled like urine in a tiny little room beside a noisy desk. It was very scary. And I saw her seeing her rapidly decline, paralyzed from the neck down at that point. And... Um, I got a message from a lot of people, but from somebody that I don't even know that well, from Sister Candace back there. And 
I don't know why exactly, except that it was God's love coming through in that. But that helped me in a way, still, three years later almost, it helped me in a way that I still can't fully describe because they followed the Lord in sending that. And so I want to leave you with this thought. Don't ever underestimate what a small action can do for somebody if the Lord is in it. That gave me the strength to keep going and to trust that, that not that he would heal her, but that it would all be okay. There's a difference. We're not supposed to claim some fake healing we haven't been promised. The fact that God, I've said this before, I still don't know how to describe it, but the fact that he healed my wife didn't show me as much about his faithfulness as the sustaining love that we felt while she was suffering. In other words, he showed me more of his character through that wilderness period than through the actual healing. And he used our friends back there to show his love. I just I needed to say that and I thank y'all. I love y'all. It's not about them, it's about Jesus, but that has been a strength to me all these years.